A quick note before we get started. This story contains scenarios involving drug use, as well as an accident involving a child that may be difficult to hear for sensitive listeners. But if it's any comfort, I promise we won't leave you on a low note. Okay, let's get started. There's a saying that has stuck with me over the years, and it goes something like this. Treat people as though they're already the person they could become, and they'll be more likely to become that person. I can't count the times where I've worked so much harder to do something well or to meet a goal because someone believed or even expected me to do it and do it well. It's one thing to set a standard for yourself and then strive to achieve it, but when other people believe you can and and will achieve that goal, especially when you yourself are doubting, it amps up the motivation. But what about when the task at hand seems impossible? Does belief from others make any difference at all? Today's story is about exactly this, a life on the verge of very destruction where few people believed change was possible. Until someone did. I'm Jolie Hales, and this is Podsitivity. blonde rocker hair on a man in his 60s isn't the norm. Unless your name is Daryl Riley. I've looked like this since the 70s. It's just who I am. And it's not just the hair. It's the rock and roll t-shirts. It's his necklaces, his voice, even the very way he presents himself. Daryl is simply a product of honest rock and roll enthusiasm. And cutting his hair is just out of the question. I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be recognizable. I think it would just change me too if I did. By profession, Daryl is in sales. But beyond offering merchant services to retailers and restaurant owners is his real passion, playing guitar. I'm a Les Paul player. That's a certain classic sound from the 70s, and people either like Les Pauls or Stratocasters. I definitely like a Les Paul. I love the crunch and and the thickness of the sound and the way it comes through. And he's been inspired by classic rock bands over the decades. Led Zeppelin, uh, Black Sabbath, old Aerosmith. I I just love all that kind of stuff. Old blues stuff I really like. Uh, Mott the Hoople, Ian Hunter, stuff people haven't ever heard of. Over the years, Daryl has played guitar in a number of local bands. These days, he often finds himself easily the oldest member of the band, but often with the youngest enthusiasm. I'm a 60-year-old teenager. Ever since he was young, he's been found with a guitar in his hands. His friend, Skip, another like-minded rock and roll enthusiast, remembers growing up with Daryl. Daryl was part of a group of guys that grew up near our church. In those days, getting together to jam was the preferred pastime for many of the people in their bustling Southern California subdivision. In fact, guitarists Dave Mustaine of the bands Metallica and Megadeth, as well as Mark Norton from the band Kiss, both grew up in that same area. All those homes were built around the same time. So all these young parents moved in, and within a few years, all their kids were the same age and they all started in rock bands. At one point, Skip's latest band broke up, so we started a new one called The Shades, where Daryl filled in as an interim guitarist while their new guitarist got up to speed. And since those days playing with The Shades, Skip and Daryl crossed paths over the years through their mutual love for playing rock and roll. Those were the good old days when more radio stations blasted classic rock and long, loose locks were ever the norm. And for some, like Daryl, those days never really ended. But that's not to say that there weren't some bumps in the road of his life. Some big bumps, even, where the guitar sat untouched and gathering dust, its owner removed from the world that was once his pleasant reality. Days where it wasn't even certain if Daryl would live to play another day. It started in the 1980s. Daryl, in his 20s, had been living a good life filled with music and friends when a woman introduced something to his friend group that would turn his life, as it often does, 
in an unplanned and undesirable direction. Methamphetamine. When we first started doing it, I started telling my friends, look, this is no good. Look how bad you feel the next day. It can't be good. I couldn't talk them into it, and I finally went along with it, and then my life became a mess. I didn't know how to live without it anymore. It was just a mess. Meth, or speed as it's often known, is a drug with the reputation of destroying countless lives over the decades. In the year 2020, nearly 1% of the U.S. population reported that they had used meth in the last 12 months, making its current use numbers not as epidemic as the current opioid crisis, but still problematic enough that each of us probably knows someone struggling with meth, whether we know it or not. In fact, I had a colleague a few years ago just vanish from the office and never come back, sending weird emails at odd hours in the night and, and kind of saying some crazy things in these messages. And my suspicion, based on the circumstances and what I knew, was a meth addiction. To this day, I haven't even been able to reach my friend, and I don't know what has become of her and, and her young child. Needless to say, meth can be quite destructive. The drug is known for putting a person into a sort of state of euphoria, where they feel like they can take on the world, and they become hyperactive and talkative, moving much faster and more erratically than usual, while having very little appetite, and they often skip eating anything at all. Their heart races, they sweat, they feel hyper alert. And when that euphoric state starts to wear off, many will seek out more drugs to try to keep it going. You're euphoric, and that's one of the worst things about it. Because you feel so good, you don't realize your life is crumbling around you. But while its users may feel euphoric, that sense of euphoria is a lie. In reality, the drug is eating away at their body, and while it's incredibly addictive, even a single dose can have lasting physical consequences. Meth is made with toxic ingredients found in nail polish remover and flame retardants, and it can cause seizures, strokes, heart attacks, and death, among a list of a lot of other adverse effects, like how it destroys your teeth and blotches up your face and all that other stuff. And as you can imagine, over time, it can really mess you up. And in the 80s, it entered Daryl's life. And with the entrance of meth came the exit of much of the good around him. It's real powerful stuff. Then once in a while, you'd have to sleep for three days and come down because you can't move nothing. You haven't been eating, you haven't been sleeping. It, it, it's horrible on your body. It's a miserable life. You sit there and you watch normal people and know you can't do that. Suddenly, he couldn't keep a job. Before that, I, you know, I had jobs. I was good. I was responsible. Everything's good. Then everything got such a mess. I moved to work at First American Title. I got booted out of there for doing drugs. After years, he found himself unable to keep an apartment and was soon living in a motel, but couldn't even keep himself together enough to stay there. I got kicked out of one into another one. So you'd pay for every day and then hope you had enough money the next day to, to get a room. It was just terrible. I, I'd walk around being a crazy guy. Everybody knew I was a crazy guy. Regular people didn't want nothing to do with me, and I don't blame them. And there was a lot of self-hatred. I didn't like myself anymore. Eventually, he ended up getting a job with a fundraising scam where he would call and swindle kind-hearted individuals to give up large sums of money to a false charity. I'd show up to work. They would have a pack of cigarettes ready and a issue of speed for me when I walked in the door because they knew if they gave me my speed and my cigarettes, I'd be there all day and make them money. Where you call up and pick on people and, and get money from them for charities where the charity got very little of it. This so-called charity company had a reputation of hiring people with drug problems because they would be the most desperate for work and the least likely to report anything to authorities. Everybody in there was a drug addict. In fact, years later, the owner of this charity scam company ended up being sentenced to almost 100 months in federal prison for personally collecting millions of dollars through all these charity scams. But throughout the 90s, they were running at full scale. You'd have these charities that had good sounding names, but they got very little. I got 35% right off the bat. And then it went on, it was just horrible. You'd pick on the same people because you knew they would just keep giving. And, and that, that was bad. And for years, this was Daryl's existence. A drug addiction, a scam for a job, and living in motels. Then all of a sudden, I met a, a girl. Then we got pregnant. Uh-oh. This amped things up a notch, to say the least. 
It's one thing to live a reckless life on your own, but once you introduce an innocent child to the picture, it's a whole different story. Lawrence, a baby boy, was born on May 27, 1996. Yeah, beautiful little boy. And instantly, Daryl was terrified. Suddenly, he had a responsibility he couldn't brush aside, but he was also deep into his addiction and had been for years. He didn't know what he was going to do. We had a kid, and I knew I'm in a mess. I've got to do something here. This is a mess. I've got a kid to raise. The baby's mom, who we'll call Melinda to protect her privacy, had originally shared in Daryl's drug partying lifestyle, but she pretty much dropped the drugs from her life and decided she wanted to be the parent that this baby deserved. But Daryl, who knew in his heart that he needed to change, couldn't pull himself out of the deep hole he had dug all these years. Even throughout his girlfriend's pregnancy and the birth of their child, Daryl continued to be addicted to meth. You hated yourself. You knew what you were doing was wrong, but you didn't know how to not do it anymore. Despite the addiction, Daryl knew he loved this little baby he had helped bring into the world, even allowing for some good moments. In fact, ironically, the motel they were living in was directly across the street from one of the world's most iconic destinations for happiness, Disneyland. Sometimes, Daryl would take his newborn baby outside at night to watch the Disneyland fireworks over the motel rooftop or walk across the street and watch the water shows just outside the gate. I would take Lawrence over there and ride the parking lot tram because he's a little kid and, and he would think he'd been to Disneyland and been on a ride. And it was like, I can't go in there. That's not for me. That's, that's for regular people. That's for real people. Regular people who didn't have a meth addiction. And Daryl just couldn't shake his. It's just miserable. You know you're doing wrong, but you don't know how to do anything else. You know it's wrong. The first thing you do every day is try to get that fixed, get those drugs. And until you do that, everything's messed up. It's just a miserable, horrible existence. Melinda, living in the motel with Daryl where she was trying to care for a newborn, was starting to get frustrated. Now that she was pretty much straight, she could see her boyfriend, her baby's father, wasting his life away with drugs. He was rarely home, and when he was, he was in no state to be a true companion and father. Then, in October of 1996, when little Lawrence was four months old, everything came to a boiling point. They had a fight. She was really done with me. I had just been gone for a couple days on a bender and she was done. Melinda had stuck around for months hoping Daryl could turn things around for their son, but it wasn't working. I was really bad. I mean, th th this was my fault. All this was my fault. I was really bad. I was hated myself. I loved my son. I didn't realize how bad it got. I thought it was getting better because I was doing it less. But it was bad. So Melinda scooped up their baby and tried to walk out, intending to stay with family until she could figure out her next move. But Daryl wouldn't let her take their son. He grabbed the child and the fight continued with Daryl refusing to give the boy back to his mother. I took the baby from her when she was leaving. I mean, I was a really bad person. I took him. I wasn't letting her take my son. Finally, in the exhaustion of the fight, Melinda only agreed to leave without the baby under the agreement that Daryl would take the baby to his father's house for the night. And that's what happened. Daryl brought the baby to his dad's house for the evening. But Daryl didn't stay there for long. Early the next morning, before he could even have a quality conversation with his dad, he grabbed baby Lawrence and he disappeared, heading back home, if you can call a motel a home. And when he got there, he did what he always did. He got high. And... If you're like me, this story is already painful enough, even aggravating. To imagine this helpless, innocent baby in these circumstances is just heart-wrenching. And it's not hard to become even infuriated at parents who put children in these circumstances. So if you're feeling along those lines, you're not alone. What Daryl was doing was not okay. And it was only a matter of time before there were some dire consequences. And as fate would have it, those consequences would play out beginning that very day. It was October 8th, 1996, in the city of Anaheim, home to Daryl and Melinda's motel. Melinda was still staying with family after their fight when Daryl had already left his father's home. Later that day, in the middle of the afternoon, 
Daryl wanted to make a phone call, but in the mid-1990s, people didn't have cell phones, and residents of this motel were only allowed to make five outbound calls per week from their in-room phones, which Daryl had already done. So to make his call, he'd need to walk down the street to the nearest gas station payphone. And even though he was still high, Daryl knew it wasn't acceptable to leave a four-month-old baby by itself in a motel room, so he scooped up baby Lawrence and he stepped outside. The sun was still shining and the weather was a comfortable Southern California 70 degrees. Daryl hadn't walked far from their motel when he decided to cross West Street at the intersection with Catella, a busy multi-lane resort intersection near the Disneyland parking lot and the Anaheim Convention Center. Witness accounts vary slightly, and so details are a little muddy here, but it appears that Daryl, who was high on meth, stepped into the intersection almost directly in front of a car, giving the driver little time to respond. Before he knew what was happening, the sedan plowed into Daryl's legs at around 40 miles per hour, launching him over the hood and into the windshield and partially onto the car roof, while baby Lawrence flew out of his arms, across probably around six lanes of the entire width of busy Catella Street, and then landed on the pavement, legs first and head first bent at the waist on the other side of the street. Daryl rolled off the car and onto the asphalt in sort of this hyper daze. It was an awful scene. Immediately, onlookers stopped their cars and they rushed to Daryl and the baby, who were separated by quite a distance, which is a testament to the sheer force of the impact. Thankfully, baby Lawrence was alive, but was badly injured with two broken legs and clear head trauma. Daryl, laying on the pavement with people surrounding him, remembers feeling no pain at all, despite having multiple broken bones, likely an effect of being high on meth. I remember very little about this accident. I remember laying down there and knew I didn't even hurt, no pain. I didn't realize how bad I was hurt. I had a bone sticking out of my leg. I mean, I was in really bad shape. So I said, is my son okay? This is the only little things I remember. They said, yes, he's over there. Oh, I'm gonna go get him. Daryl tried to get up to find his baby, but the people around him held him down, perplexed at his apparent inability to feel pain despite his consciousness. An ambulance arrived minutes after the accident and rushed baby Lawrence to UCI Medical Center's trauma unit located just a couple miles away, and another ambulance arrived to treat Daryl. Many of the police on the scene recognized Daryl from past run-ins, and they assisted the medical team and with traffic control, with some quietly seething with dislike for this man or saddened by the predictability of the situation. The news media, newspaper, and TV reporters from all the major Southern California networks soon showed up and reported on the incident. The story of the auto-pedestrian collision involving a father and a baby became a front-page news story. The driver of the car, a teenage girl who was clearly shaken but thankfully unharmed, stayed at the scene and cooperated with police. The next thing I remember is them putting me in the ambulance to be talking to the ambulance people like everything's okay. I had no idea I was hurt so bad. Just in complete shock, no pain. The ambulance rushed Daryl to the same UCI Medical Center trauma unit, where he quickly went into surgery. Then uh, I remember waking up on the gurney and being pushed, and an ex-girlfriend happened to work at the hospital, a girlfriend before I got messed up. I just remember looking up and seeing her crying her eyes out, and I just said, hi, cat. I mean, it was just so... Um, I had no idea I was hurt like this. It's a good thing, because I don't have nightmares. I would be if I don't remember much. And then uh, next thing I remember is the next day that I've had, I, they had put rods in my legs and arms and I was going through a surgery the next day. The doctor's telling me what was going on, being surrounded by five doctors, all with glum looks on their face. Uh, my legs swelled up. It was just really bad. I couldn't talk at first because I had uh, tubes down my throat. Suffice it to say, Daryl was a physical mess. And down the hall was the most innocent person in this story. 
little baby Lawrence, who by the grace of God turned out to be incredibly resilient. After flying across a wide and busy street and landing on the asphalt, his body proved to be strong. He was put into a body cast from the waist down and bandaged on his head, and it wasn't long before he was smiling at doctors and nurses, despite his unconventional plaster baby clothes. We should have been killed. We both should have been killed. The doctor had told my brother when he was there signing papers that uh, this is all a formality. People that get hurt like this don't live. They, they probably won't be alive tomorrow. But yet, they were alive after a horrible, stupid mistake born of a serious, life-destroying addiction. And for the first time, with no meth in reach, that really started to hit Daryl. He had soon gone into surgery upon arriving at the hospital where rods were put into his broken legs, linked to fixators to keep them from moving. And when Daryl opened his eyes, it was the first time since before the accident that his judgment wasn't clouded from methamphetamine. His high was over, and he realized just what he had done. Just immediately, just remorse. It was just horrible. He had recklessly stepped into traffic, not only risking his own life, but the life of those driving on the roads. He could have caused a multiple car accident and injured others. And worst of it all, he had been holding a baby, his own baby, a sweet, innocent child who, despite Daryl's drug abuses, he truly did love. A child who looked up to his father with resounding dependence and trust. Even now, that sweet child, recovering in his own hospital room, had no idea that the cause of his newfound pain was that of his daddy. And now that the drugs had worn off, Daryl knew it. He knew it, and the thought twisted his insides in such a way he had never felt before. This was his fault. No excuses, no denials. The news reporters, the police, the teenage girl behind the wheel, all were at the corner of Catella and West because of him. But beyond all of them, forget that the public was learning about the foolish father who had stepped into traffic. That didn't matter. What did matter was the 15-pound little boy rooms away, his baby Lawrence. The thought tore him apart. I realized everything was bad. My son was hurt and all this. It was all because of me. Daryl wasn't the only one facing the horror of what happened. Melinda, who had returned to the motel room expecting to find her baby and boyfriend there waiting for her, instead found an empty room with no sign of either of them. She comes back to the hotel looking for us. Somebody stops her. Oh, they're at the hospital. Oh, who are they visiting? What's going on there? No, they're in the hospital. They're hurt. They got hit. Horrified to learn from others at the motel that her baby was not at the hospital to visit someone with Daryl, but was actually admitted to the hospital trauma unit after being in a serious auto pedestrian accident, Melinda, struggling to keep herself together, headed straight for UCI Medical Center. I didn't get a chance to talk to Melinda for this episode, but as a mom myself... I can't imagine stepping into the hospital room and seeing my child for the first time after an accident like that. Heart-wrenching doesn't begin to describe what it must have been like. And at the same time, I can't imagine the mother's fury she must have felt toward Daryl for being responsible for the whole thing. And as Daryl tells it, there definitely was fury. All of a sudden, she shows up at the hospital, and she's mad at me again. She had just been to see the baby, and then she's mad at me, which I don't blame her, to the point that the nurse was going to kick her out of the room, and I told her I couldn't talk, and I'm like, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Right there in the hospital, Melinda let Daryl have it. She railed into Daryl with anger, despair, exasperation, every emotion we could possibly imagine. And after she hashed everything out in front of Daryl, who was laying near motionless in his hospital bed, she did something that I found to be really unexpected, even very surprising. She forgave him. And it's one thing to forgive someone for their part in a horrific situation, but it's quite another to choose to keep that person in your life. And yet, that's exactly what Melinda did. Maybe it was because she finally saw an opportunity for Daryl to really come clean, to rid himself of this horrible addiction. Or maybe she just couldn't picture her life without him. 
or had a picture in her mind of of what he could become, a picture that Daryl himself had probably forgotten years ago. Whatever the reason, Melinda did not break up with Daryl at that moment, but instead chose to stay by his side as he recuperated from the accident and beyond. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I highly doubt I would have stuck around for even five seconds. But, you know, really, I also don't know what it would be like to be in their shoes and come from their backgrounds, right? So whether others thought she was incredibly kind-hearted or incredibly foolish, Melinda chose to stay with Daryl. And she stayed by his side for 26 years. But there was another influencing factor in this story. What would happen to baby Lawrence? When Daryl's blood test results came back positive for having meth in his system at the time of the accident, it became clear that his custody was no place for a child, yet alone a young baby. So social services came and they put baby Lawrence in the custody of the state. After spending a few weeks at the hospital, baby Lawrence was placed with a special foster mother who had experience working with injured children while social services searched for a long-term foster family. It was a special trained woman that took injured babies. She didn't like me either, but I don't blame her. I don't blame anybody for not liking me. Uh, At that time, I didn't like me. How could anybody else? Given the circumstances, it seemed pretty clear to many at the state that baby Lawrence would never again live with his biological parents and that he would grow up most likely in the custody of adopted parents. I mean, after all, they had seen so many addictions ruin families, never to be repaired. They couldn't leave him with somebody like me who took him out high and got him hurt like that. And and they, they really wanted me to fail. They hated me. I was hated. I got a baby hurt. I was hated. I hated myself for it, too. While Daryl had been found with drugs in his system at the time of the accident, he didn't have any physical drugs in his possession at the time that would lead to criminal prosecution. But while it appeared he wouldn't be going to jail, his home wasn't a huge step up from that. Remember, Daryl and Melinda lived in a motel, making them fit how many would define the term homeless. And a motel is no place for a baby to grow up. So just like that, their baby was gone. And Melinda and Daryl were faced with do-or-die circumstances. Straighten up, get life on track in a permanent way, or never live with their son again. I think she knew we either had to do this together or or, or give him up. But she was just a good-hearted person. She believed in me. She saw something in me that I didn't know I saw. But was getting baby Lawrence back even possible? Aside from cleansing their lives from addiction, going through required counseling, and taking a number of classes required by the state, they would need to earn enough money to get out of a motel and into an apartment. But Daryl was virtually immobilized in this hospital bed. It would clearly be weeks before he would be discharged, and then who knows how long it would be after that before he could walk again, let alone work again. Melinda's ability to work was already drastically reduced by injuries and disabilities sustained growing up from a a sad combination of childhood abuse and a debilitating car accident. There was no way she could dig them out of the financial hole all by herself. And she couldn't help but wonder, was there any hope at all? What she didn't know is that just a few blocks away, an old friend was thinking about the accident. I remember somebody either calling me or telling me about it, and I was just floored because it was such a terrible accident. I didn't know if he was alive. I didn't know if, the, if Lawrence was alive. Remember Skip? The fellow rock band enthusiast who had crossed paths with Daryl and various bands growing up? It had been years since Skip and Daryl had had any contact, probably more than a decade. I didn't even know they were in a motel locally. I knew nothing. Skip was sad to learn not only of the accident, but how Daryl's life had plummeted beforehand. But he was still a friend. He was still a shade. While other former friends of Daryl's were saddened by the news, most people did what most of us do in these circumstances. Prayed for the best and moved on with their lives until they got further news. But for Skip... The thought of the accident, his old bandmate, the struggles of addiction, and a little innocent baby gnawed at him throughout the day. He just couldn't let it go. So, after asking around, he tracked down a tearful Melinda at her motel 
where he was thankful to learn that both Daryl and the baby had actually survived the accident. I asked her what the situation, it was really hopeless. They had nothing, I mean, nothing. And they were going to get, I'm not mistaken, they were gonna get evicted from the motel. So they were done. While Daryl and baby Lawrence had survived, their family's story was still this tragedy unfolding before Skip's eyes. I said, well, you know, where are you gonna go? And she was just like, we have nowhere to go. We have no money, there's no income. Daryl's can't work, obviously. Skip offered what words of kindness and support he could to the broken woman in front of him. And then he left, pondering her words. At the time, Skip was actually vice president of a local record label, where he got to stay close to the music he loved. And before that, he had worked in public affairs for a rock and roll radio station. So the thought hit him. Why not use his public affairs background to help this family? So he did what he knew how to do from his time working at the radio station. He called a press conference. And wouldn't you know it, the press actually showed up. So he stood in front of a room filled with newspaper reporters and said, I said, look, we have a family in crisis. You know, they have no place to to live. They've got nothing. You know, the father and the child got into this horrible accident. If the baby survives and, you know, if the father survives, they're going to need a place, a safe place. And so we wanted to start up a fund where people could donate. He outlined a process where people could donate money to help Daryl's family. And the reporters, many of whom were already familiar with the accident, listened. For those newspapers that showed up, the story got out and it reached a lot of people. And immediately, checks started coming in. Skip worked with Melinda to ensure the money was put into a proper account, and when Melinda came to the hospital and told Daryl what his old rock buddy had done, he was blown away. I couldn't believe it. I didn't think I was worth anything, but there's people that thought I did, and that helped me. People believed that we were worth helping. Donations ranged from $500 down to a few dollars. Even a homeless couple came in and gave me $5 while I was in the hospital. Saw it in the paper and walked in the hospital, said they were living in the car and they gave us $5. A donation that he'll never forget. That's just the thing. When you can help somebody even a little bit, you know, one person gave us, walked in and gave us $5. It not not only helped us monetarily, it just made us feel like we had worth. The largest donation came from the president of the very bank he used to work for before he lost his job due to drug addiction. Daryl and Melinda were baffled. The newspaper articles faulted Daryl for the entire accident and yet, people were still willing to give him a hand. With funds available, hopelessness began to melt into hope for Daryl and Melinda. This meant they might have a chance. And for Daryl, this was a chance he did not intend to squander. His years of meth addiction had to be over. I was in the bed, I could rest, I could get clean, I could get it all out of my system. Oh yeah, I I knew what, what I just did. I'm lucky I didn't kill my kid. How could I dare do that again? And Melinda, ever the supportive companion, kept her eye on Daryl as they pressed forward. Oh, I was on thin ice. If any slip up I made, she was gone. We had to run a perfect program. We had to. We knew it. They zoned in on one goal. Get back baby Lawrence. Not just get him back but earn him back, and back to a home and family fit for a childhood. We came together, we were a team, we were gonna get our son back, we were gonna get cleaned up, and that's what, that what helped me made it, because we were a team, we were doing something, that made our relations stronger, we had a mission. I wouldn't have been able to get through uh, the social service and everything. I just physically couldn't have got to where I needed to get to and did what I had to do. For four weeks, Daryl was in hospital care away from the drugs that had controlled his life for so long. He used that time to reprogram his brain into ignoring the desire to get high and instead focus on their goal of getting their son back. I knew what I had to do. I had to get well first. I mean, it was a big deal for me just to get from a hospital bed to sit up get on a walker and walk five feet and come back. While Daryl healed at the hospital, Melinda was busy working with Skip to track and deposit all the donations. And in just a few days' time, they had been given more than $5,000. 
enough to say goodbye to the motel. People were very generous. Melinda used the money to put down a deposit and pay six months' rent on an apartment. She just started handling things. Boom, 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 boom. And uh, she was flawless. So I was, you know, I was very, very happy to see that. But Daryl did too. They loved their baby so much that this was a real wake-up call. After four weeks, Daryl was released from the hospital. And even though he was still in pretty dire physical condition, he was determined to be a new man, starting with fulfilling his civic duty. I got out of the hospital on election day and we went and voted. But even going out and voting was a whole to-do for someone as banged up as Daryl. I couldn't walk. I had a broken arm, broken uh, femurs, broken fib and tib, broken knee. I still got rods, three rods here. And I had these big quarter-inch pins drilled into my leg. And, and I walked around with that for at least six months. But when he finally entered his new home, he knew life was going to be different, in a good way. Our house was full of groceries. And so began their new life. Since it was before the days of crowdfunding websites like GoFundMe, all of the donations that made this apartment possible had been mailed in by hand, and Melinda had saved every donation envelope. And since Christmas season was around the corner, Daryl and Melinda wrote and mailed Christmas card thank you notes to every donor. And then more money came in after that. And we, that wasn't a solicitation for money, that was just a show of appreciation, and we thought that it was right around the holidays, we'll do it that way. And from there... They stayed focused on their primary goal, bring their son home. Pushing me in the wheelchair, getting us to all our appointments to him. We had to take a bus and then go about 10 blocks. We made every visitation, every meeting, every drug test. We didn't miss anything because we knew that we had to do a perfect program or give up our son. Once baby Lawrence had healed enough to be free of his little body cast, he had been placed with a foster family. This wonderful family from Hungary, I remember Attila and Sylvia, he was a big um, table tennis star. I saw him in the paper a few times of having a table tennis company and everything, doing good, and they were wonderful people. It was comforting to know that their baby was in good hands. We had regular visits with him. It started off where we'd just go down and see him and then monitor visits outside and overnight visits. They, they do it like that to make sure you're, you're okay and gonna take care of them. Then they saw he was well adjusted. And baby Lawrence seemed happy throughout it all, showing love for Daryl and Melinda, as well as for his foster parents without bias. I remember one time we were doing an exchange and, and, and this is when I'm better, we've got an apartment and they bring him over in Attila. The foster father brings him and he goes, bye Dada, hi Dada. It was really funny. But the road to regain custody wasn't easy. Daryl's body was taking its time to heal, but he would need to get a job before the donation money ran out. The charity scam business he had worked at before even reached out to him and offered him the opportunity to work for them again, this time work from home. But Daryl rejected the offer. After years of scamming so many people with false charity pleas, he had ironically been given a second chance by real charity and he didn't want to have anything to do with that old life again, even if it meant risking finding no work at all. And in the meantime, he pressed on with hope, knowing his baby was with a good family. At one point, we were almost saying, maybe we should just give him to them. Maybe he'll be better off with them than us. If we didn't believe we could give him what he needed, we were going to do that. Why should we take him out of that good home if we can't provide him a good home? But earning decent money didn't come easy. A couple months after getting out of the hospital, Daryl found a job that made it possible to work with his injuries, selling long-distance phone services. And then we went there one day and they were gone. The whole place was gone. I guess they weren't making money. Imagine that regaining custody of your very child depends on you being able to work but then your job suddenly just disappears without notice and you're unexpectedly left jobless again. They took me for a week's pay and they were just gone. But just as Daryl and Melinda were wondering if they even had what it takes to provide a good home for baby Lawrence, the supervisor from the disappeared long-distance phone services job gave Daryl a call and helped set him up with another sales job. A brilliant stroke of luck, you could say, if you believe in luck. Or maybe it was something else. 
A lot of times in my life when things were just really bad, something has popped in to fix it. Okay, when we ran out of those apartments, that six months ran off, it wasn't working really good. We really didn't have a place to go. The donation money had been well spent and had given them the chance that they needed. But it was gone. I mean, this was Southern California. Even in 1996, apartments were not cheap. With the snafu of Daryl's job just packing up and disappearing one day, all he and Melinda had left was $500, and that wasn't going to be enough to stay in their current apartment, nor would it be enough to pay both rent and pay for a deposit on another one. We didn't know what we were going to do after that, be in motels and stuff. And I changed my counseling session to another day. And there was a guy in there that rented apartments. Daryl, who normally went to his counseling sessions at night so he could work during the day, moved his appointment on this particular occasion to a daytime appointment. And while he was there, he overheard a guy talking to someone else about how he rented apartments to people. So Daryl struck up a conversation with the guy and found out that he came from the same kind of background as Daryl did. And he understood what it was like to try to pull yourself out of a pit. I heard him talking to someone else. I told him I need an apartment. And then all of a sudden we were in a new apartment. The man had compassion on Daryl and was willing to take a chance on him. That was around the same time he was offered the new job, and then things just started to fall into place. Skip remembers watching Daryl's transformation. Child Protective Services kept checking on them over time, you know, making sure nobody was on drugs. They had to do drug testing, all that stuff, making sure the place was safe. You know, like, you know, exactly they did their job, all right? And it was difficult for them at first but that was a turning point for him. You have to understand when something like that happens, it's do or die. You either give up on your family, everything you are inside, or you do everything you can to rise to the occasion, to handle your stuff, you know? And Daryl did that. And then finally, about a year or so after baby Lawrence had been put into foster care, it was time for him to come home. This time, his parents were free of addiction, living in an apartment, making ends meet, and waiting with open arms. The day they brought him home from social service, he was happy. He knew he was, somehow he knew he was coming home. He was home for good. Because he was just happy, doing the happy dance, showing me all the toys and stuff he brought. Look at this, look at that. He just little, and somehow he understood that he was coming home, and that was it. He was home. His foster parents lovingly turned baby Lawrence, who was more of toddler Lawrence, over to Daryl and Melinda. Even though they had frequent visitations and they knew this day was coming, I can only imagine what it must have been like for the foster parents, which, I mean, honestly, I could do probably an entire episode on good foster parents because as far as I'm concerned, they are angels in this world. They fell in love with Lawrence. We have a whole photo album of just his life with them and everything he did. And from there, life was good. It was a different life, a new life, gifted to them by the kindness of an old friend and a number of strangers who took a chance on someone who some would say had never really earned that chance. I asked Daryl what it was like to raise his child without being under the influence of drugs. I was there. I actually noticed it. I mean, we, we were buddies. He was, he was my boy from the beginning. He and Melinda got married, and they raised Lawrence together. And it was soon apparent that Lawrence had inherited a little something from his dad. He loves his music. He's a musician. Um, I remember that um, I just had instruments around. Just left him around. I got a little electric piano for him, a couple guitars and stuff, and then some bongos, and he loved the bongos, so I bought him a cheap drum set, and that's what he decided to do, and I would try to play with him, and it was hard because he had trouble keeping a beat, and then he learned that he was really good. Now he's a decent guitar player, too. At first, I tried to teach him guitar. No, 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 just let me play with it. Then one time he came and asked me how to play something, I don't remember what it was, but I think that's a little too complicated to start off with. And and he said, I want to do it anyway, and then he got it. It's been more than 25 years since Daryl's accident took place, and Lawrence, obviously no longer a baby, 
made a full recovery, and is living life as a thriving adult and a talented drummer. Melinda and Daryl stayed together all those years until separating just a few months ago, but even though she's no longer part of Daryl's everyday life, he'll never forget her role in bringing him back from the brink for her loving support, motherhood, and friendship, for being one of the people who believed in him. And over all those years, Daryl stayed clean. Aside from one relapse several years ago where he pulled over and lit a pipe in the parking lot of what he thought was an abandoned building, which turned out to be owned and operated by the sheriff's department. I could have got on America's Dumbest Criminals. Imagine his surprise when multiple cops quickly showed up outside his car. It was almost as though the universe was not going to let Daryl go back on his commitment to live a drug-free life. And even though it's been two and a half decades since everything happened, it's clear when you meet Daryl that the lessons learned in those days have stuck with him all this time, driving him to do whatever he can to help others whenever it's possible. When I have the ability and I see somewhere I can help, I feel I need to. I mean, I'm happy to do it, but, but I feel I owe it to pay it forward. He's fed the homeless, donated gifts and needed items to children in foster care. He's worked with Make-A-Wish. He's even played with a band at homeless shelters as a kind of pick-me-up for those who were there. I met Daryl when I was leading a volunteer leadership council for a company in Orange County, and Daryl served on that council, and he really did advocate for every charity event that we participated in, and he showed up to all of them. And I barely knew anything about him when he just one day opened up and he told me this incredible story of his life. And it was clear that rather than just tell people of the change he underwent throughout it all, he lives that change. And as for Skip, the old friend of Daryl who put the donation cogs into motion, they still play together every now and then. These days, Skip runs this nonprofit music school for kids called the Jimmy Allen Studio, where he helps provide instruments and lessons to youth who aren't able to learn music in schools. He teaches you how to tune. If you can't afford an instrument, he provides it for you and gives you lessons. So he teaches a beginning guitar, then he gets other people to volunteer and teach for him. And uh, many people have been very good. A lot of really good musicians came out of there. I asked Daryl what he would say to Skip after all this. Skip, you saved my life. If you, if you wouldn't have helped out when you did, you saved my life. A lot of times when you help somebody, it's not really going to help them. They're going to do that. But there are those people that any little thing you do could mean everything. That could turn them around. It made me feel that I was worth something when I didn't feel I was worth anything. If, if these people believed in me enough to, to send in donations, maybe I should believe in me. He also had a message for the many people who donated money to his family, many of whom are still out there, probably spreading kindness without any recognition. Everybody that helped, if you see this, you've helped greatly. you helped my family. you saved my family, number two. If you help somebody, it could change their life. Any, even a little bit. Even if, if the monetary isn't much to help them, just letting them know that you think they're worth something. Sometimes you think, oh, I'm just going to give him that. He'll just buy booze with it. Well, maybe he is, but maybe not. Sometimes a little bit of help can just change someone's life completely. And it did mine. It gave me back my self-worth, my self-respect. I got back in to become a productive member of society again. And it just did it just everything. In fact, if, if that didn't happen, to tell you the truth, if that didn't happen, I didn't get straightened out, I would either be dead right now or even worse still alive and addicted. That would even be worse. And honestly, one of the most interesting aspects of this story is Skip. And I'll tell you why, at least how I see it. It's easy to give charity to someone who is a victim of a tragedy that is beyond their control. I mean, for instance, if a drunk driver hits and hurts pedestrians walking across a crosswalk, it's easy to feel this immense sympathy for the people who were hit because they did nothing to deserve it. They were just, you know, living their lives like you and me. But in Daryl's case, I mean, you really can't beat around the bush and say that Daryl was a defenseless victim. On the contrary, it's pretty easy to argue that this whole tragic situation was a direct result of his bad choices. And all that said, going back to that hypothetical example of the drunk driver hitting pedestrians, let's say that the drunk driver was also desperately injured and, and maybe couldn't afford necessary treatments. 
It's easy to want to give charity to the pedestrians, but I mean, how often do we, myself included, think of giving charity to the drunk driver? And it comes down to this conundrum of justice versus mercy and where the right place is to plant a flag. And I mean, if you're like me, you never want to enable bad behavior, right? But you want to do what's right and you believe in helping others. So I asked Skip about all of this, about why he felt moved to start a fundraiser for a man who was ultimately responsible for injuring the innocent, especially when he came with a track record of long-term drug abuse. How did Skip know that others' money would be put to good use? When you have a crisis like that, who the hell am I to make a judgment on whether or not I think they're worthy? Okay, I mean, that Jesus guy said, you shall not judge, right? Smart guy, that Jesus. Because honestly, there's just no way you really know what they're going through. There's no way you really know what kind of person or people they are. They were two people with a child. Both the father and the and the baby were gravely injured. And that's all the information I needed. That's the way it should be, isn't it? to see pictures and links from Daryl and Skip's story, you can visit PodsitivityPodcast.com. You can also find Skip's nonprofit music school on Facebook by searching Jimmy Allen Studio, and that's Allen spelled A-L-A-N. And of course, a very special thanks to Daryl and Skip for taking the time to talk to me and tell me their story. I know it's at least impacted me and given me a lot to think about. Also, if you want to help support our efforts to tell true uplifting stories, The best way to financially do that is to sign up for our Patreon, where every dollar really does count. (laughs) In fact, a special shout out to our newest Patreon supporters, Henry, Charlie, and Eric. As far as I am concerned, you are heroes of the day, my friends. You can also support us, of course, by leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They allow reviews now. Or honestly, by just sharing the podcast with someone who might benefit from hearing one of these stories. As you might guess, these episodes take a lot of time to produce, especially being a mom who's also the family breadwinner and pregnant, not to complain. It's just, you know, it's a lot, but it's great. I love doing it. But the more people who hear this podcast, you know, the higher those listener numbers are, the more it motivates me to keep dedicating the little time that I have, because I really do believe in the importance of shining a spotlight on the goodness of others. Anyway, I hope you have an amazing day filled with people just like you. And always remember, you're worth more than you know. (laughs) 